Well, good morning. And soon to be Happy New Year. I am Pastor Jason, and, and welcome once again to Rancho Baptist Church. We have been taking a walk through the book of Acts, watching Jesus at work. And then we, we took a little time out to prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. And so we spent a couple weeks in the book of Luke, but today we will be going back to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. As I kind of want to frame in where we've gone in order to make it clear where we are heading. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And this is the last part of Peter's little mini-sermon to the Sanhedrin, where he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We saw before that this was the culmination, the end of, of Peter's little sermonette that he, that he gives to the Sanhedrin. And he encaps, encapsules everything by saying that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And this week what we're going to see is that that name is, is actually deemed the forbidden name. And in particular, this points back to, to verse 12. And the fact that what Peter does is he acknowledges Christ's name as the name above all other names. And we have to remember that, that in the context when the word name is mentioned, there's quite a bit of significance behind it. Unlike when we think of names today in America, there's no significance, there, there's no great big meaning behind it. But when they were talking about the name of Jesus Christ, indeed what they were talking about was the authority of Jesus Christ. And really what was being questioned by the Sanhedrin, and we have to remember where this came from, that Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells the believers fills the believers, and Peter then gives his first sermon and 3,000 are saved, growing Christ's church, birthing Christ's church, to 3,100 and something believers. And then in chapter 3 we saw that, that as Peter and John were heading into the temple, they came to this gate called Beautiful and there was a paralyzed man there and he asked for alms and they give him something so much greater, they give him the ability to walk. And then Peter uses that as an, as an opportunity to preach a second sermon. And that second sermon, at the end, they get arrested. Peter and John are arrested. They are put in prison for one night. And then they stand before the Sanhedrin and, and they give a defense for all that has happened. And he encapsulates everything by speaking again of there being no other name by which man can be saved. And really what the Sanhedrin in essence is asking them and what he is defending is this. By what authority did you accomplish this miracle? 
And Peter responds clearly that it's by the authority of Jesus Christ, in particular by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I believe that that the name of Jesus Christ really is the main theme of what what we see in Acts chapter 4. That this name of Jesus Christ, this name that is above all other names, that as we saw so many weeks ago, that there is no other name, that today we're going to see it becomes the forbidden name, that this name of Jesus is on trial. And it's now time for this council, for the Sanhedrin, and assess the evidence that has been presented. And when you think about it, they had to come up with some decision. They had to line themselves either on one side or the other. And where they end up landing, it's calling this name the forbidden name. And as we're going to see, that they're going to tell the apostles to stop proclaiming, teaching this name. And why is that? It's because they recognize that the incriminating truth that these apostles and the early church were, were proclaiming was going right up against them. Because it was incriminating them, showing that for sure what they had done was crucify their own Messiah. The one that they had deemed as not the Messiah, the one that they had crucified was the one that they are now lifting up his name. And so what do they end up doing? They end up making his name, the name of Jesus Christ, the forbidden name. So let's see how they make this name the forbidden name and what the result is. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Follow along with me. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. And when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would now teach us through it, that you would make your word clear, that we might leave today emboldened, strengthened, encouraged to walk closer with you no matter if persecution should come. And that your name, rather than being the forbidden name, would be the name that is heralded, the name that is proclaimed, the name that is taught, the name that is preached. It's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen. So what we're going to see today 
again, I believe all centers around this name. The, the name of Jesus Christ and the fact that they are trying to go ahead and make this name the forbidden name. And what we're going to see first is we're going to see the hush that happens as a result of this name. The huddle that happens. And then finally, the high command. So first, let's see the, the hush over the forbidden name. Found in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now as often as the case, Luke starts off with tying in this paragraph with the paragraph that we saw so many weeks ago. Tying in this occasion and this circumstance, this situation, with what had just happened with the Sanhedrin. Right after he finishes his sermon, this is what happens. His little mini sermonette. And we see what they originally do is they had observed some things. This word observed is, is really, it's a court term. And it, and it brings out this idea of understanding something on the basis of what someone has seen or heard. So it's on the basis of watching all of these proceedings happen and on the basis of what Peter has just preached that they then observe these things. And what's the first thing that's mentioned? The confidence of Peter. We, we must understand that, that the Sanhedrin was used to people coming before them. That this wasn't the first time that, that they had conducted court. That they did this all the time. And no doubt the difference is that they're not used to seeing somebody come and stand with confidence before them. This word could actually mean fearlessness. Especially in the presence of persons of high rank. It literally means every word. And it, and it connotes the idea of expressing oneself without holding anything back, no matter what the consequences might be. And this did not make sense to them. How and why they would be able to approach them with so much confidence. And yet we're going to see this word three separate times in Acts. And we've already seen it once. In Acts 2.29, when, when Peter's giving his first sermon, he uses this word, Luke does, to talk about the fact that, that, he could, that Peter could confidently say that David was dead and gone, but that Christ was raised and living. And then we see it here in, in 4.13, but we're also going to see it at the end of chapter 4 here in 29 and 31, which most likely we'll see next week. As, as a result of what happens today and what we will see, the believers gather together and what they pray for is for this confidence, for this boldness to do what God would have them to do no matter what the Sanhedrin has told Peter and John. But that's not the last time that we'll see this word. We'll, we'll actually see this word at the very end of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, verse 31. As, as Luke wraps up the life of Paul who is now under house arrest in Rome, and he gives us an encapsulated sentence of, of what his life was like. And, and this is what it says. But with boldness or confidence, Paul preaches Jesus Christ to everyone who visits him. That, that's the same word. That's what these guys observe. That's what they see and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because they understood that they were uneducated and untrained. This word uneducated could mean that they were illiterate. 
But we know that Peter and John are not illiterate because they have written parts of our New Testament. And so obviously what this word means isn't illiterate, but that they were uneducated in the fact that they had not gone to some sort of formal school, such as a rabbi school or or what you and I would, would term a seminary. And they were untrained. No one had trained them as far as their system goes. And so so they look at this and, and, and they just don't understand. And we need to recognize that they would look at them and just say, these are just Galilean fishermen. These aren't scholars. And with that, they're amazed. And, and, and then what it says next is, is very strange. At least it's strange to me. And they understood they were uneducated and untrained. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The verbs that are used here give us the idea that it wasn't until this process, until they actually stood before the Sanhedrin, where it finally dawns on them, yes, these men have been with Jesus. And I'm wondering, what? (laughs) What do you mean you didn't know these guys were with Jesus? And yet the reality is that they had not fully grasped the significance of who they hung out with until they see the confidence that's before them. And and remember, they had spent three years with Jesus, traveling around with Him, no doubt coming to the temple. And and now for the last at least month, maybe longer, they'd been coming to the temple and a great big group had gathered. And and Peter was one that had preached over and over again already. And yet, they don't understand this. This realization was slow in coming. But now it dawns on them. And they understand, yes, they had been with Jesus. And no doubt this depressed them further. Why? Because they recognized, oh man, Jesus taught like this. Jesus, when He spoke, He spoke with confidence and with authority. And in John 7.15, as in many other cases, we see the people's reaction to Jesus' preaching was that they marveled at the fact that He could preach with such authority without having gone to school without being a rabbi, so to speak, because he hadn't done all that formal training. And now they're seeing in Peter and John exactly the same. And while I say they had not gone to this public training, this public seminary, I would say that they spent three years in the best seminary the world has ever seen. Right? Because they were with Jesus. They were with God, who knows all doctrine, all theology, And he would teach them precept upon precept. And when they didn't get something, he would clearly explain it to them and sometimes they still wouldn't get it. And not only that, but then he would teach them through his example, loving people graciously over and over again. Man, no doubt this was the best seminary ever. And and, and so what does it do? It transforms these men. And, And we know that they were transformed because Peter didn't start off like this. He was always running with his mouth ahead of everything. And here now we see a confidence in Peter that that has to be the Lord. And on top of all of that, think about Pentecost and what has happened. Now they have the Holy Spirit residing in them, controlling them, strengthening them, empowering them. It's no wonder that Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 19-20. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. 
It's the Holy Spirit doing this. And, and that's why these men could have such confidence because the Holy Spirit in all actuality was taking over just as we saw Him take over on the day of Pentecost and in Acts chapter 3 with His second sermon and even with His little mini-sermonette now. But it wasn't just the courage of the apostles and it wasn't just them being with Jesus that they observed, but there was someone else that they observed. Look at, look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. This too was something they observed. And as they observed this, it left them speechless. But notice how he, how Luke words this. He, he says, who had been healed standing with them. You know, he didn't have to, to put in that word standing. The sentence would have carried the meaning by him just saying, and seeing the man who had been healed with them. Why would he put that in? I believe he's doing that in, in order to make a play on words and to add more emphasis on exactly who it was that this man was now standing before them. The text doesn't tell us why he is there. I, I wonder if the Sanhedrin actually called him in to be a witness and their wonderful plan backfired. Why? Because the man that was standing before them had never been able to stand before. And they, no doubt, as members of the Sanhedrin and priests, had walked by this guy time and time again. And so they could no way in any stretch of their imaginations deny who this man was and that this was a testimony of God. And so they had nothing to say. In other words, they couldn't say anything to conflict with what had happened or to disprove what had happened. Why? Because it had stood the test of time and it was accurate. This miracle wasn't done and gone in several hours. It had now been two days since, since this miracle and, and he was still able to stand. Unlike many other miracles that happen today, right? So they couldn't deny the reality of the miracle. So what did they do? They kept quiet. They were totally hushed. They could not deny it and they, and they weren't, they weren't going to acknowledge it. So embarrassed, they, they do something else. They order them out and then they huddle. Look at verses 15 to 17. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. So they order them to, to leave. Actually what that means literally to order, it's, they're literally telling them to go outside of where they were meeting. And this is the normal procedure for the Sanhedrin. When somebody would meet within their court system, after hearing the witnesses, they would dismiss them. And then they'd have a clear and open discussion among themselves in order to corroborate everything and figure out exactly what the sentence was going to be. But this time, they're, they're, they're at, a, at something of a loss, right? Because they had no charge to lay upon them. And on top of that, the accused were now very popular with the people. So, so things weren't going well. And so they didn't know what to do. So then it says, what it, it, 
it says that they began to confer with one another. And remember, these are the, the Jewish Supreme Court of their day. There's nobody higher within their framework to appeal to or to come in front of. This, this was the, the ultimate authority, not, not only as far as religious matters go, but as far as legal and government affairs went as well. And so they start to confer with one another. That word confer, it means it's a compound word of two words. On the one hand, it's together. And on the other hand, it's to throw. So it's the idea of, of throwing around ideas and thoughts in such a, in such a way that, that you finally arrive at some sort of solution. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to come up with a solution. And yet, notice how they acknowledged what had happened. They actually say that for a fact that this miracle did indeed occur. And they say that we cannot deny it. In fact, they're saying we're unable to deny it. Literally, they're unable to say that something is untrue about this. And so then what do they do? Then they come up with this plan. They say this, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Notice how they don't even want to say the name of Jesus among themselves. That's how much they hate this name. But what does the it refer to? But so that it will not spread any further. How can the news of this miracle be spread any further than it already has? It's already all over Jerusalem. Well, they're not talking about the miracle. That isn't what they want to stop. What they want to stop is the spread of the name, the name of Jesus. And isn't it interesting that although they admit that the miracle had occurred and that it had been done by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, they don't repent. They still hold their anger of Jesus. And and I would think that, that within this huddle that they were having, where they were discussing these things one with another, no doubt some of the discussion might have gone on something like this. Okay, yes, these two men, they, they were... They were definitely spending time with Jesus. That troublemaker Jesus, who had to be done away with, because such people always have to be done away with. But we thought when we murdered him, when we eliminated him, that his influence would be eliminated as well. But now that is not happening. His influence is actually spreading further and further and further. What can we do? Well, we need to stop it. And so their main desire isn't so much to protect the truth, or protect the people, but to protect their own selfish selfish interests and to preserve their good way of life and and what they have. And so look at what they do next in in, in verse 18. As they issue this, the, the high command. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. It's ironic to me that that the early church had to be commanded to stop speaking about Jesus, whereas the modern church actually needs to be commanded to speak about Jesus. As oftentimes, Jesus isn't even mentioned in churches. And I've been to a church before where they, they actually read from a newspaper because they didn't believe that the Bible was relevant enough. Another church where rather than explaining Scripture... And, and clearly 
communicating to people what the scriptures meant, what, how this applied to their lives. The, the pastor would just memorize the, the entire verses that, that he was working through, which had to be a, a narrative, because then he would kind of act out and, and, and say the verses, but he'd never explain anything. And it was, it was more like watching some sort of show than actually hearing a sermon. And Christ was, was, was nowhere to be found. And so what do they do? They, they, they command. And it's rightful, right for them to command. They, they can command. Remember, this is really just like the Supreme Court of our day. They, they could tell them to go to jail or do this or that, but they don't end up doing that. Instead, they, they command them before witnesses. Not to publicly teach or preach or even personally speak about Jesus. Notice that they don't command them to do any more miracles. Because they can't deny that. And, and, and if it was just the miracles without the preaching that accompanied it, I don't think they'd even be concerned with what was going on. But because along with the miracles, preaching always happens, they have to do something. And notice what else they don't discredit. They don't try to go after the resurrection. Even though Peter has now preached this every sermon that he has preached. And he preached it with them as well. But instead of going after that, which is what they should have, because this is what the Sanhedrin did, they were supposed to validate whether or not a miracle was right or not. So it was right for them to stand before them and, and, and give them a hearing and then tell them whether or not this miracle was valid or not. Well, instead of going after the resurrection, they used this as an excuse, as leverage, to stop the preaching of the message that was being proclaimed as a result of this wonderful miracle. And why can't they go after the resurrection? Because there's no way they could discredit it. It was fully attested. And so they do the only thing that they think that they can do or they postulate about doing is they decide, okay, yes, we'll make this name forbidden. And in essence, what they're trying to do is, is, is they're trying to intimidate. They're trying to control them. They're trying to basically steamroll over them. And yet what we see in their response is these are not the kind of men that you can just run over. Look at verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love those passages, those two verses. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Hey, no matter what you tell us, we're not going to stop. Why? Because they're looking at this from two vantage points. One on the side of who they're accountable to and the second on the side of who the source was of the message that they were proclaiming. They knew ultimately that they were under God's authority. That they were accountable to God. And these men who were the judges of the nation of Israel, isn't it interesting that, that they're the judges and they're now, now asked to judge for themselves? They're, they basically uh, appeal to a higher court and say, I know what you guys say, but what does God think of this? Would He rather have us follow you or follow Him? And the implied answer, and, and, and this is good sound logic, is, well, of course you'd follow God. But they also know this. They know that their message was not their message, but it was Christ's. And so they say this, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
The apostles weren't dispelling their own claims, their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own opinions. They were boldly proclaiming that which was passed on to them by Christ. And that's what gave them the confidence that they had. That's what gave them the boldness for them to say, well, we're going to follow God because we know that God commanded us to do this. They don't look at the gospel as some theoretical philosophy, but, but they look at it as life-giving, a life-giving salvation message that had to be proclaimed. And the real issue here is authority. The authority of the Jewish rulers on the one hand versus the authority of Jesus Christ. Because remember, Jesus Christ had commanded them to be His witnesses. And think about the fact that they weren't just eyewitnesses to all that Jesus did while He was here on this earth and all of His miracles, but then they were eyewitnesses to His resurrection and then they were eyewitnesses to His ascension. And add to all of that They were ear witnesses to all that he preached, both publicly and privately, personally. So when it comes down to it, really they had no choice. They had to defy the orders of the court. For they were clearly stepping between the commandments of God and the commandments of man. Turn with me to, to, to Romans chapter 13. I don't want us to walk away thinking, oh, we... We just get a card then that we can just not listen to any traffic law or any other law that the government throws out because, hey, look, the apostles did it. Pastor Jason said that in church. So now I, can, man, I don't have to worry about my taxes. I don't have to worry about this or this. No. The, the reality is God's Word speaks very openly, candidly, truthfully about the fact that we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Because they were instituted by God. They are from God. And they're not a bad thing. They are a good thing. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. No qualification. Every person. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. What's... What God's Word communicates to us is that civil, civil government is ordained by God and it's for the ruling and maintaining of order in communities. It's given to rule, to protect, and to keep order. And, and that means it's a good thing. Laws are a good thing. And, and, and likewise, God has also created other authorities. Authorities within the church. Elders. Why? to provide order, to protect, to discipline. He's also provided who? Parents in homes. 
Why? To do the same thing, to give order, protection, discipline to the family unit. What happens when that's removed? And there is no authority. Come to Papua New Guinea and live with us for several years back in our village in Papua New Guinea and you will see what happens. Everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. And until things escalate to the point to where even a, a, a newly birthed baby is, is being buried alive, nobody will step in and stop it. And people will bludgeon each other and murder each other. And nobody will stop it. Why? Because the social restraints are removed. So without these God-ordained authorities, there's no boundaries and things spin out of control. So in so many instances, these are a good thing. The authorities that God has established and given us. However, if a government forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, Christians cannot and should not submit. And then some form of civil disobedience is inescapable. Right? That's what we see here. Because that's what they're asking them to do. They're forbidding them what God requires. Or they could require what God forbids. I don't know if it'll ever get to this point, but here's an example. Let's say the government tells us that abortions are now mandatory. What do you do with that? As believers, we rightfully need to disobey that. Jot this down. Exodus 1, 15 to 17. For there is the story how Pharaoh asked the Hebrew midwives to kill a newborn baby that is a boy. But let the newborn baby that is a girl live. And do you know what the Hebrew midwives do? They don't comply. They don't obey. And do you know why? They say because they fear God more. And there are instances where where that needs to happen. For Daniel in chapter 6, verses 4 to 15, and it actually goes on much past that, you, you probably know the story. He was set up and told that there was an edict issued where everybody couldn't pay homage or, or pray to any other god but King Darius. And in Daniel, it was his custom to pray. And so what happens? He prays and they come and they grab him. They throw him in the lion's den. And the king can, can't sleep all night long. And he runs to Daniel in the morning and he, and he asks him, Daniel, Daniel, did your God save you? And, and do you remember Daniel's response? He says, Oh, blessed king, my God sent an angel to shut the mouth of these lions. And I am unscathed. I am fine. So like Peter, or like Daniel, Peter and John are willing to suffer the consequences going against the laws of the Jewish government. But God keeps them from being punished. Let me close our time with back to Acts chapter 4. Verses 21 and 22, as we see their response. Meaning the Sanhedrin's response to the fact that Peter and John say, we're going to follow God. When they had threatened them further, they let them go. 
finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So we see two reasons for letting them go. The, the first reason is that they had no grounds for punishing, of course. They hadn't done anything wrong. They'd done something good. They, they'd actually healed a man who had been paralyzed for over 40 years. The second reason given for letting them go was they feared the people. The people really seemed to, to cater towards John and Peter. That they had become popular in the people's eyes. And so what did they fear? They, would, they feared some sort of rebellion that would happen if they punished them. But notice the contrast. Just thinking through the, this whole scenario even what's been presented in chapter 4 here in the book of Acts, between two different ways to respond to the gospel, between two different ways to respond to, honestly, the same sermon. Look back with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 4, and one way to respond, the way of responding in faith. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Again, that's just the men. If we include women and children, the number was much more than that. And it could be that the early church was now up to 20,000 people. They had heard the same message that then Peter gives to the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin, rather than responding in faith and repentance, they respond by rejecting the gospel and stiff-arming the name of Christ. In fact, outlawing the name of Christ and trying to stop everything that the Lord Jesus was doing by building His church. And it, and it becomes apparent now as, as we continue on through the book of Acts, as we will see, that many Jews will follow their lead. And, and they will continue to reject the Christ. Why? Because their leaders have stumbled over the chief cornerstone. And likewise, many Jews will follow the, their leaders, stumbling over Him. But even in this, consider in the midst of this persecution that Peter and John were going through. What did they do? They remained obedient. And they had confidence that that the Lord would help them. I think there's a good lesson for you and I to learn in this. That God wants to give us confidence in His strength to get us through even hard times, even persecution. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15. If you want to turn there. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15. As Peter years later pens this, showing us how much he, he learned from these initial experiences. And, and, and remember that when this happened, The early church is only a couple weeks old. This is what he says. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What's his perspective with persecution? 
He says, look at it as a blessing, as you are blessed, as you are given this opportunity to what to sanctify Christ, to become more like Christ and let Him be known, proclaiming His good news. Man, this whole situation, I'm sure in their minds must have started off looking very scary. No doubt thinking, oh my, we're going down the same road that, that that our Messiah went down. Maybe we're going to end up being on the cross next. And no doubt Satan was thinking, oh my, this is going to be a wonderful opportunity for me to have victory. But God turns something that looks so bad into something so good. As over 5,000, just, just the men are saved, so, so with women and children, much more than that. Peter is once again filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches to who? To a... a a Jewish leader audience that he would never have that opportunity to preach if he hadn't been persecuted. These hostile examiners end up confirming a miraculous healing in the name of Jesus. The enemies of Christ are confused and don't know what to do. Peter and John are bolder for Jesus than they ever have been. And then finally, as verse 21, the end of verse 21 lets us know, They were glorifying God for what had happened. God receives the praise and the glory. And and that is how we should look at this, that we should look at it as an opportunity to praise God. Some things to, to take with us this week, just to consider. This first one has been convicting to me all week long. Consider how the members of the Sanhedrin recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Think about the fact that All someone might ever see of Jesus is what they see in you. How well do you do it representing Christ? Ouch. Would someone say of you, isn't he a follower of Jesus? And I, for one, need to pray that God would make it as obvious in my life that I've been with Jesus as it was for those who witnessed the way that Peter and John lived their lives. Number two. Consider the members of the Sanhedrin this week who admit that a miracle had occurred through the apostles. They recognize the miracle was done in the power and the authority of Christ, and yet they do not repent. Is there something in your life which God is doing to turn you towards Him in repentance, but you just continue to push Him away? And don't wait any longer. Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is indeed relevant. Relevant. <laughs> and relevant. <laughs> that, that your word speaks into each one of our lives, into each one of our situations. That we don't have to add to it that we don't have to spice it up, that we can look at the life of the apostles so many thousands of years ago and we can be directed on how we're to live our lives. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and boldness to share you with others and to allow your name not to be hidden, but to be proclaimed. Give us the boldness to do that as we leave here this morning. In Jesus' precious name. 
Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.